Now, Dan Lin got the idea for the Lego movie in 2008 while he was watching his son play with Lego. And he pitched the idea. Most thought it was ridiculous, but he persevered, started to build a team, and a movie started to grow up. The Adventures of Emmett, who discovers his grown-up calling and his special purpose to be part of saving the world that is amused by the ridiculousness of the sitcom, Honey, Where Are My Pants? And it finally emerged, this wonderful movie. It took six years, about $60 million, and a cast of hundreds, most of whom uh, you have no idea who they are. And all this work to produce a story took years, many heads and hands, and it was massively fruitful beyond the one hour and 40 40 minutes that it ran. The Lego movie that took $60 million to create, which is mind-blowing enough, grossed $468 million. It won numerous awards, increased Lego sales by 15%, all from an idea and from a mostly anonymous team of diverse gifts. Now, that's a very human story. It's pretty cool, actually. And in fact, it's it's what we were created with capacity for, for partnership and vision and perseverance and living out the creativity of our creator, even when we don't honor him as such. That's what's very interesting. And so if this is so in the world of entertainment, And might it not also be true in the growing up of God's church, the ecclesia in the world, that God might also have mutuality, for for God to grow the church, might he not also have mutuality and partnership and teamwork in mind? I wonder if that's true. We're going to read the scripture together this morning. You're going to read it right where you are. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 7 to 16. You'll see it come through on the screen here in just a minute. Choose somebody in your setting where you are. Maybe you're on your own, so you're it. Uh, Perhaps pick a kid around you. Ephesians 4, 7 to 16. It's on the screen right now.
Thanks for reading. And now, watch this creativity. The Apostle Paul wrote Ephesians from prison. But Paul knew that he'd been rescued from sin and seated with Christ in the heavenly places. Okay, guys, I want a good, clean game here. Give me 110%. Don't go to jail. So Jesus has given to the church people gifts, like the apostle who starts new things, the prophet who reminds people of God's justice and truth, the evangelist who invites people to follow Jesus, the shepherd pastor who takes care of the flock, and the teacher who reminds people of God's truth, explains it, and makes it practical. So when God's starting a new thing, the apostle says, let's start that new thing, and the prophet and the evangelist and the shepherd and the teacher all work together to build up the church and to make God's kingdom real on earth. Let's go, guys. That's what I'm talking about. That's what Jesus is talking about. God's vision, you see, for you is sainthood. We were following life as we wanted, without hope and without God in the world, but God brought us into his family and we're now his household, the church, God's ecclesia, awakening to our position in Christ and called to take holy responsibility for the place, space, and time that we are given. So who you are in Christ is more glorious than you've assumed and who we are as God's church in the world is more marvelous than perhaps we've accepted. In Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 to 6, which we looked at a couple weeks ago, we shifted from the mind-blowing awareness of our individual and corporate identity in Christ to the practical. What God begins and plants, he grows toward maturity. And so in Ephesians 4, 1 to 6, God called us to humility and gentleness with one another, patience and the eagerness to guard the unity of the spirit that God has created in the bond of peace. And we were urged by Paul in chapter 4, verse 1, to, or, to live a life worthy of the calling that we have received. And that calling is the calling of the church. We are to be a people living worthy of the incredible and uh, the incredible call and purpose of the church that God has in mind. Because we have one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and so we have a calling to be one in Christ for his glory. And so the ecclesia, the church, does not exist for my private therapeutic spirituality. That's actually not why the church exists. The church is how the light distributing wisdom of God is being revealed not only in the place that I live, but to the spiritual powers. Because the church is God's missionary. And the mission flows from the heart of our Heavenly Father. God the Son is leading His body into God's reconciling and restoring mission. And the Spirit is empowering the church for it all. This is our call and this is what we were saved to join and live worthy of. And so the church has a calling. But what about me? Ah, now that's the classic Western question that we often immaturely ask about everything all the time. But what about me? What about me? What about me? Am I just a meaningless amoeba absorbed into some hairy fairy pipe dream? It's easy to settle for being Emmett, maybe living in my Lego house, sitting in my Lego chair, watching my Lego TV in my Lego underwear, and ain't it ever lumpy? 
That was actually a song that our kids learned once upon a time. We're not to think too much or too little of ourselves, but actually we're called to think higher, more dignified thoughts, to grow up into the high calling that God has for his children. And God's focus, you see, is fruitful maturity to not leave us as infants. And this is what you just read in verses 14 to 15. Then we will no longer be infants tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by every thought and deception that the ruler of the kingdom of the air is bringing into the world. We won't be infants tossed about. Wow, have you ever considered in how we are living in times when the wind is blowing we are tossed on the waves of opinions and spurts of experts. Should we take that medication? Should we visit that place? Should we return to work? Should we send our kids back to school? Should I trust the news? Should I eat avocado? You know, we have all these thousand views and opinions and chatter surrounding us and keeping us coming back for more. The world is convulsing and we're all heaving. In fact, we're so rattled. The fact that we're so rattled is a sign of actually our collective immaturity. Every age, my friends, has its moments, its storms. Every generation has its challenges. Every generation has its plagues and depressions and confusing times. We're not the first. What sustains the world is not childish tantrums or adolescent narcissism but maturity, the capacity to endure, to not buckle, to hold serve, to be unified in hope and to contribute to hope. This is precisely the vision that God has for his church, to not be left like drowning infants, but to be mature, able to swim the currents, to discern what is true, to invite people to follow, to calm people's fears, to teach, that there is a way. This is where Paul is taking us now in Ephesians chapter four, because the call is to the living out of our saintly and ecclesia identity and position in Christ. The call you see is corporate, but the gift is personal. A grace in verse seven, a grace has been given to each one of us. To each one is given a gift according to how Christ measures it out. The gifting is for me by Christ. We have a gift from Jesus. And gifts are not earned. They're free, right? If you have a birthday and you receive a gift, you didn't earn that. You were born. You got a gift. A gift is grace and grace is a gift. And Jesus is filling all places and his presence through the gifts of the church. And this is the great mystery that can often baffle us. Because if Jesus is the Lord of history, why didn't he just stay on earth and gather a YouTube following? Even his own disciples wondered this, you know, without the YouTube part. They were confused when he told them that he would be leaving them in John chapter 14. But he promised that whoever believes in me will also do the works that I'm doing, the same works that the Father wants done. And those who believe in me, these are Jesus' words, and those who believe in me will even do greater things than I'm doing because I'm going to the Father. John 14 verses 8 to 12. Jesus hints 
that though he has descended, and this is what Paul's talking about in Ephesians 4, that though Jesus descended, he must ascend. His leaving will release the greater works of God in the world through the heirs, the saints, the family of God. Even after the resurrection, the disciples remain convinced that Jesus, the superstar, would finally make Israel great again. In Acts chapter 1, they're assuming that this must now be what's going to happen. But Jesus there makes it clear that he must leave. For then the Holy Spirit will come and fill the saints. And the disciples as a communion of opposites, united by the Spirit, would be witnesses of his reign over all things. And so the whole plan of God was to rescue people from the power of sin, which we could never do and still can never do. If you're trying to rescue yourself from your sin, your guilt, your shame, your fear, you'll never do it. You can't do it. Jesus came to do that for us. And then, to, and then God's plan was to having rescued people from the power of sin, to fill those who repent with his power and thereby exponentially expanding the reach and expanse of the kingdom of God in every place, in every time, in every location. And unlikely fellowships like ours now, even though we're gathered like this on a Sunday, must keep maturing into this community of witness in the city of change. We expect and pray that God will do great things, immeasurably more. That's what Paul just prayed at the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And so we contend for maturity to be all grown up like our big brother, Jesus. Did you have a person that you really wanted to be like when you were little? Maybe you are little as you're listening in this morning. Who is the person you want to be like when you get big? Now, generally, we don't look at our grade three classmate and say, boy, I want to be just like them when I get big. And when we're in high school, we often want to be like those amazing 20-somethings. And when we're in our 20s or 30s, we want to become like someone who is like that respected gray hair with life experience that we look up to. We all want to grow up. This is the natural drive in us. Well, the church, you see, is driven by the Spirit of God to grow up, to be like Jesus. The church aches to be like Christ in the world. And so the ecclesia, the church, is not an organization about Jesus. It is an organism that is the overcoming, risen, ascended, grown-up Jesus in the world. That's why we have to keep growing up and maturing. And Paul's saying this to this young group of believers in Ephesus, and it's still true for us today. And so Jesus had to descend to save us. That's what Paul's saying. And Jesus had to leave to ascend so that his glory could fill the whole universe. And we, the adopted heirs, are growing up into that calling. And it's the ascension that makes the incredible possible. Now, Ascension Day is a thing. Did you know that? Uh, this year, traditionally, uh, Ascension Day is 40 days after Easter. So this year it will fall on May the 21st. And where I grew up in southern Ontario, Ascension Day was a day to go fishing, believe it or not. It was. It was common for the, we called them the horse and buggy Mennonites around whom I live, the horse and buggy Mennonites and the Amish people in our community to go fish on Ascension Day. They would actually cancel school and go fishing. And many of the rest of us joined in. 
The rumor was, you see, that fish didn't bite before Ascension Day. <laughs> and in some countries, this is actually true, in some countries like Sweden, it's still the official kickoff of the fishing season. And so Ascension Day reminds Christians to start fishing. Jesus is risen. The grave is overcome. Jesus has descended, has ascended and commissioned his church to be fishers of people. And so we fish. The church, the ecclesia of God is on a fishing mission with Jesus proclaiming and demonstrating that the king reigns. And so all are called to repent, to step into hope, to take their seat beside the risen and the ruling Son of God and then boldly and sacrificially and in unity be about the works of justice, righteousness, and God's shalom. This is the calling on the ecclesia that we share. So we have a collective calling and we have individual gifts. And so our gift, the grace given to each one of us, is so that the call of the church in the city of change may mature and grow. And isn't that an amazing thought? The Lord of Lords says to me, I'm going to put myself in the spot, but you can say this to yourself, Phil, now that you're part of my family, here's what I'm giving to you. And so the gift is for me from Christ. And I have family chores in the household of God. It's a sign that I'm a child not a guest or a visitor. Do you see how important that is? In our home, our, our kids have chores. If you're a guest in our home, we're not going to expect you to share the same chores. You don't have to clean our toilet, but we have people in our home who do. And in, in, in chapter 4, verses 8 to 10, Paul has drawn on Psalm 69 to poetically summarize how Christ would come from the heavenly realm to this earthly place to redeem a people and then raise them up into their true identity and calling as the sons and daughters of God. God is spirit, you see, but he always puts flesh on. In Jesus, he could only be enfleshed in one person. This is what's so crucial. In Jesus, God could be enfleshed only in one person. But this one Lord saves many from, the, from every tribe and language and people, and then he sends them to their communities as his ambassadors. His ecclesia, therefore, needs gifted people that God will use to mature his body. And what are the gifts that Jesus now dispenses? Well, that's what we find in verse 11. Take a look real quick. Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and the teachers. Let's just take a quick look at each of those. Who are the apostles? Well, they're the sent ones. Those who are the lead ambassadors. They're the groundbreakers, the starters, the initiators, and the pioneers. They're the ones called, often like Paul, to suffer for the kingdom to take root. They often ask, where to next? And then there's the prophets. They're the forth tellers, not fortune tellers. They're the forth tellers, the interpreters of God's will for a particular moment in time. The prophets often remind us of God's heart and mind and the way we should live. They correct us rescue us from sloppy thinking and living that destroys the unity of the spirit and the integrity of the church. They call for God's ways to come alive, especially in the ways of injustice and the neglect of the poor. Prophets shaken and awake us. They are often not always liked. But deep down, we know they're right as they remind us. 
of a way to live. And then there's the evangelists, the bearers of God's good news to the hurting, the hopeless, and the lost. They love to share the love of Jesus with those who don't know him, who can speak and demonstrate with simplicity and clarity. They love the lost and the lost love them. They know how to make friends out of enemies. They invite people home to the Father and they are the recruiters of the kingdom. And then there are the pastors, it's interesting because pastor here is actually a Latin term. The Greek word when it says in, our, in verse 11, when it says pastors is actually the word for shepherds. So the pastors are really the shepherds, those who feed and protect the flock of God. When all these other gifts have done their work and there's actually a fellowship, a family, a local gathering of people, God will always call out pastors and they think of the well-being of the souls of the saints. They care. They're always concerned with the who's and whoville. They're always asking what will happen to the people and their presence and their nurture and their wisdom sustain and build the strength of the saints. And then there are the teachers, the master instructors. They explain truth and they make it applicable so that the ecclesia can live it out. And often they will speak and teach in contrast to the winds and waves of the teachings, whether it's the first century in Ephesus or the 21st century in Canada. And when they speak, a teacher, when a teacher gets clear, the people say, oh, not only, oh, I get it, but oh, I can do that because teachers deepen the faith of all the ages and they aren't focused on the sound of their own voice, but on the maturing of faith and knowledge in the Son of God as explainers of God's heart. And so God's design for every community of faith to be formed by the calling out is to be formed by the calling out of mature saints with these gifts so that the body of Christ might mature into its calling. You see where Paul, what Paul's saying? Way back in chapter 3, verse 2, Paul had said this, Surely you've heard about the administration of God's grace that has been given to me. Paul was living out his own grace gifting as an apostle. But this is what's interesting. Apostle wasn't his job title. It was his grace title. It was the unlikely call that Jesus apportioned him that the church as a whole discerned he had been given. Apostle wasn't something that he decided he would be when he grew up. It was what Christ decided. And it, what was, and it was what the church discerned that Paul should live out when they saw that he was ready, mature, and by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Of the Holy Spirit. So the Apostle Paul is a moniker of his participation in the maturing work of the body of Christ in the world. And in 4, chapter 7, Paul said that this grace that enveloped him uniquely into the plan of God is true for each of us. Paul is unpacking a holy and a glorious reality. The children of God all have a part to play in the body of Christ maturing into God's purposes. It is your household chore to offer your gift for the building up of the church. It is your responsibility, now pay attention, it is your responsibility to mature into your identity as an heir that Ephesians chapter 1 to 3 had described so that you can serve the maturing of the ecclesia in the city of change. Christ is the head and he gives to his body what it needs to be healthy. 
And so Jesus in these five gifts that shape and sharpen the church supplies, and this is what's wonderful, Jesus himself supplies his body with what is needed to become like him. So it's interesting. As Glenn was leading us in songs of worship and praise this morning, did you pay attention to how well he was pastoring us? He was a pastor this morning. One of the greatest pastorally gifted people I've ever known in my entire life worked at a tractor dealership. One of the boldest evangelists I have known was a truck driver. He's one of the reasons I'm a son of God. One of the clearest prophets that I have known was an administrator for a medical nonprofit organization. One of the strongest apostles I have known was a taxi driver. And one of the teachers who explained to me the Holy Spirit with great clarity was a farmer. See, Paul is not talking about a job. He's talking about something better. He's revealing the wise gifts that God gives his church for the sake of the maturity of the church and her ministry in the world. And I believe that we all have a particular gift bent in one or even more of these areas. This, earlier this week in our newsletter, we sent out something called the fivefold survey where you could explore this a little bit for yourself. Because as a gospeling and fellowshipping people, there are those of us who are bent toward gospeling, the advancing of the good news into the world. That's what apostles and evangelists do. And then there are some of us who are bent more towards strengthening our family fellowship. That's what pastors and teachers do. And then there are some of us who remind the fellowship to get on with gospeling and who remind the gospelers to never forget the fellowship. And they tend to be prophets who stand at the intersection of gospeling and fellowshipping. And the gifts you see force us to need one another. Grace invites us to submission to God and one another. Jesus designs his body to work together toward maturity. And so David Fitch writes in his book, Faithful Presence, the fivefold gifting functions as a discipline that opens up space for the presence of Christ among us. When the prophet submits to the teacher, when the apostle submits to the pastor and vice versa, we start to make room for the leading of the Holy Spirit. So the gifts, now pay attention, pay attention. The gifts are not a coronation toward independent empire building. They are an act of submission to Christ and submission to community. And so this is crucial. While we all have a bent or a spirit-given inclination in these areas, and I think it shows up in a variety of ways, even, even in young kids who have given their lives to Jesus, it starts to emerge. The calling, though we all have a bent, the calling to exercise that in leadership is what the church calls out not something that we demand or claim for ourselves. But the survey said, I'm an apostle. Well, then live into that, mature into that. Do your responsibility of growing as a disciple and allow that to mature and the church led by the Spirit will call you out. And so this five-fold survey can help us see where I fit on the team, but getting called up is something I mature into. So you see, the emphasis is not on how amazing you are, though you are. It is how amazing grace is. That's the point. How we are becoming more like Jesus and more about his collective work. And so the amazing athlete 
who proudly is all about themselves, undermines the team. It's the same in the church. Remember what Paul said at the beginning of Ephesians 4, humility and gentleness, the guarding of the unity of the spirit. All these qualities are grown up qualities. And this is what the church discerns. And it's what Jesus elevates into influence. And this is always discerned best in community. We don't get the call because we've read books or have a degree. The call comes because we've submitted to the maturing work of the Spirit in our lives. This is Paul's own story. Do you know it took years and years for his call as an apostle to emerge? Even after in the road, on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, he was said he would be an apostle to the Gentiles. It took years for that to emerge. Because it's easy to read a book. It's harder to have the word of God transform us for his purposes. The gift, you see, is Jesus' gift. And so the call to exercise it with authority will always be done in submission to him and the affirmation of the body of Christ. And so my task, my task as a pastor, somebody who carries a title, pastor, my task is to work at nurturing and maturing faith in myself. And the church's task is to discern who has this maturity so that we can keep on maturing together. And this forces us to practice humility and gentleness. And so the five gifts force us into interdependence. Because it's all wonder. The grace that saves us is a miracle and the grace that gifts us is a miracle. And the grace gift that we have is given Now, this is what Paul says in verses 12 to 16 of chapter 4, that the grace gift is given to equip the saints for the work of ministry, and the purpose of ministry is to mature the church for her witness to Christ in the world. Way back in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, Paul said, we're, we're God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works. God's work is through all of God's redeemed adopted kids. And the apostle, prophet, evangelist, shepherd, teacher gifts help the body do the work of the ecclesia in the world. But notice, it's the gift, the gifts don't do the work. This is crucial as well. As this has been one of the greatest mistakes in the modern North American church that we've hired people to do the work of the church. That's a wrong. That's offside. That's not what Paul's saying here. The gifts don't do the work. They equip God's people for the works of service so that the body might be all grown up. We don't have leaders in the church to do the work, but to help us do the work of God together. We're not passive bystanders or even a cheering audience. Way to go, Phil. Way to go, Pastor Joel. We're all active participants with coaches, equippers, mature and tested ones who we have learned can help us be more like Christ together. The equipping here is about fitness. It's about adjusting. The words Paul are using are very much into the realm of a body that is physically fit. If your back is out of sorts, you might go to a chiropractor, right? And they adjust you. They equip you to be able to work well. I have a son who is into lifting weights, and I was not. But when I wanted to start doing some lifting, I, the adult, had to submit to what my son knew of weightlifting to help me do it properly. I'm pretty sure I really frustrated him. 
But this is a picture of what we're working toward as a body, toward fitness, toward better health, toward a more fully Christ-like reality. The grace gift that I've been given by Christ and that you have been given by Christ is to keep the body of Christ maturely fit for the high calling of being the fullness of Jesus in the world. Moving forward, his kingdom's apostolic advance, his kingdom's prophetic justice and shalom activity, his kingdom's good news proclamation, his kingdom's healthy family life, his kingdom's truth that moves us toward clear understanding and, and applying the word of God. A whole army of mostly anonymous people work together to make a Lego movie. A whole army of people that you didn't know. But the church is all of God's kids being our gift, happily anonymous at times, eagerly doing our chores, equipped by those who are mature so that we may become mature so that Jesus is known. This is the bodybuilding activity. And so the first task of the church, please listen, the first task of the church is not to grow numbers of people so that we can say, look how many people are part of our church. The first task of the church is to work toward maturity. Your task and my task is to mature in Christ individually and then to offer that maturing to the church as Jesus calls so that fitness happens. And Paul says that the fitness and maturity of the church has a marker. In verse 13, a mature church is Jesus-minded, Jesus-guided, and Jesus-like. The imagery that Paul uses is all about, as I said, unified body fitness, able to stand in the shifting waves of time and culture and teachings. Verse 14, you need to be fit to swim the culture and never give up in freedom what was never given up in persecution. Verses 15 and 16, growing up begins to take our direct, we, in growing up, we take our direction from our head, Jesus Christ, and we are unified in purpose. The unified mature church never says, here's what we want to do. No, we're learning to ask, what would Jesus have us do now? Where is he leading now in the city of change? And isn't that a massive question in these days? It's not a scary question. That's a maturing question. A number of years, years ago, Monty Python had a hilarious sketch called The Ministry of Silly Walks. I don't know if you've ever seen it, but I have a weird sense of humor. So The Ministry of Silly Walks is this fictional British government ministry uh, that identified the silliest walks and finds ways to make them into a bureaucracy. <laughs> and the bodies of those actors, they flailed about and there seemed no connection to the head and it's all satire. But it's often how we function, each limb and body part flailing and doing its own thing while, they, while we struggle to find a bureaucracy to organize the chaos. Conversely, think about when you've seen an amazing dancer or, or an amazing athlete, a body that's tuned, muscle memory, every part maturely unified, trained, submitted and doing its part. And you observe a unified expression of human fullness. But this came through discipline and coaching and persevering. And the church is meant to be so unified, every part 
tuned and contributing and graced to make the fullness of Jesus visible. And this is the unity of the Spirit we're contending for. Why? Because only what is mature bears and thrive, bears fruit and thrives in storms and crisis and in persecution. It is mature growth that provides strength for the weary and the broken. It is mature growth that produces fruit. And the peril of immaturity in our culture will prove its downfall. And if this immaturity becomes the way of the church, if this immaturity is the way in our households, there is nothing that we have left to say. The maturity of the ecclesia advances the mission of Jesus. And so God's gift, you, is so the church can live her call. So step up, do your chores, get disciplined, focus on maturing, receive the strength of the mature, grow up, stop living beneath your dignity. God gives gifts for bodybuilding. You have been called to sainthood, now mature and grow up. Everything the Christian does, everything, listen, everything that the Christian does is done entirely to strengthen the mission and witness and fitness of the church in the world. Not the organization, but the body so that Jesus is known and made known. My individual discipleship is toward that end. And I am called to offer a gift of leadership. And if I am called to offer a gift of leadership, it is toward that end. Your life Arrested by grace, my friends, is not merely to support a charitable organization. Your gift, your grace gift, is to strengthen the fitness of the full revelation of Jesus' lordship and his glory and his plan to restore all things. That's what Jesus is talking about. That's what he's talking about. Let's pray together. I'm sure it's like in the stillness of this moment, there's things that have stirred in you. There's things that stirred in me again as I prepared this this week. It was like, Lord, I just humble myself before you. It's just such an amazing thing that you've called me out of hope, out of my hopelessness and into your hope. That you have rescued me from darkness and brought me into the kingdom of light. That you've taken me and I know what my heart's capable of. I know who I am. And you've rescued me and placed me with Christ in the heavenly places. And you've made me part of a large family. And you've set me down in a community where I get to live this out. That's your story too, if you're redeemed and set free. And it's your invitation if you've not given your life to Christ. Your invitation is to come into this family and to come into this purpose that God has in store for you and for this world. So Lord, we humble ourselves before you. Lord, where there's maturing needed in our lives, where there's a new discipline, we want to participate with your Holy Spirit in that. I pray, God, that you would raise up workers for this season and time the apostles, the prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. Lord, there's, there's so much need for maturity in the world. Would you help us be this mature body for your purposes?
And I thank you, God, for your faithfulness through the ages, that this is your plan, continues to be your plan, and we get to be part of your plan. So we humble ourselves and awaken to be your servants in the mighty name of Jesus, our head and our Lord. Amen. Amen.